You're tuning in to the Black Hollywood Live Network, featuring news, interviews, and commentary on all things Black Hollywood. Hollywood redefined. From Los Angeles, California, streaming live thanks to Akamai Technologies, this is Black Hollywood Live. Justice is served. Featuring the week's roundup and commentary on legal news. Black Hollywood Live. Hollywood redefined. You're listening to Black Hollywood Live. And now, the host for Black Hollywood Live, Justice is Served. Hi, and welcome to today's episode of Justice is Served here on Black Hollywood Live. We are so happy to have you join us in our discussion of this week's legal news that we think you should know about. We're here to provide you our thoughts, analysis, opinions, and insights. Uh, I am joined today by a fabulous uh, panel of co-hosts starting here with B.J. Abron, who is a new member of the California Bar. Congratulations yes, again, yes, B.J. Yes, thank you. He comes to us all the way from Compton. Straight out of Compton, straight out of law school, uh, straight into your ears with his very passionate views. Thank you so much for being here, BJ. We are also honored to have Shannon Myricks here. She is a UCLA law student in her second year. She went to undergrad at Berkeley and then took a, a little detour from her education to spend some time at the White House, where she was an intern and also worked there in uh, management at Administration. Dang it, I thought I was going to let that one roll off my Close tongue. Enough. <laughs> Sorry about that, but doing some pretty cool stuff there. Then she decided to come back to school. Is at UCLA and is going to go into entertainment law. Is that what I heard is the goal? So far, we'll see. All we'll right. See how that pans out. Okay, and last but not least, of course, we have Shaka Smith. Thank you so much, Shaka, for being here. He was Miami-born, uh, Princeton educated for undergrad, then went to law school at D.C., and then moved to L.A. to pursue acting and fitness modeling. Offers a really interesting perspective. And I am your host, Chelsea Galicia, uh, born and raised right here in L.A., been practicing workers' comp law for, gosh, seven years now. Way too long. All righty. Shall we begin? Yes. All right. So we have, uh, gosh, I can't remember. The weeks are running together. It was maybe two weeks ago the Laquan McDonald case, right? Mm -hmm. So that was a a Chicago shooting where it took a year for the video to be released. About eight days apart from that shooting was another shooting in Chicago. Uh, This of uh, Ronald Johnson by a Chicago police officer. And this also took a year for the video to come out because uh, the same objections to releasing this video were made in the Laquan McDonald case. And when the judge in the Laquan McDonald case said, no, the video's got to come out, Rahm Emanuel, the mayor of uh, Michigan, uh, Michigan, God, Chicago, uh, didn't want to fight this one anymore. So this video came out now. And we are about to show you this one is... Uh, less graphic than the Laquan McDonald because you can't see as well and you don't actually see it. So uh, it's still a, a, a real-life shooting. So if that is bothersome to you, you may want to look away for a few seconds. But uh, this isn't something um, brutal or, or graphic. But you are going to see exactly what happened as the police officer who um, shot uh, Ronald uh, Johnson rolled up to the scene. The call to police was shots fired. Uh, and so that does, um, we're gonna, we're gonna 
hold off on the video for just a second, but you know the 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 biggest news that came out of this release was the decision not to pursue any charges against the officer, which is a stark contrast to the Laquan McDonald case where they charged Officer uh, Van Dyke with first-degree murder, and we talked about the significance of that. Here, no charges. And um, do we have the video now? All right, let's roll that. So there is no audio on it. So what is claimed here is that Ronald Johnson was running away into Park, allegedly holding a gun. Right. And so this officer showed up on the scene and was... I believe less than five seconds of when he yeah. rolled up, which you know kind of reminds me of Tamir Rice, where the officer rolled up on the what was he twelve year old kid right. who was holding a gun and just got out of the, the car and shot him two seconds later. Uh, so this is a little bit reminiscent of that. Also, this guy is said to have had a real gun on him with him at the time that he was shot, and is that a good enough reason well, to distinguish this case from the Laquan McDonald case and not have any charges against this officer? What do you think, BJ? On its face, I would say, of course it is. Um, it's a huge difference. Well, again, Laquan McDonald was reported to have had a knife on him as well, so he did have a weapon. But here, uh, having a, a, a gun is obviously different than having a knife. Now, whether that's uh, a true statement or not is another story. Um, right. Because we've only heard We've only heard one half of this, especially now since these charges are not being brought forward. We will only have heard one half now. And I think I think that's the big issue. Because when I first read the story, I said, oh, he had a gun, and um, he was driving in the back of a car where one of a friend who was a witness said that he'd reportedly heard a gunfire and had assumed it belonged to him. Um, and then, of course, the police came back and said that um, they found a gun by him when they had shot him initially, and then he, the officer took the gun and put it in his waistband. That, that part is a little bit weird to me. Yeah. If you're shot, do you have the strength to keep hold of an object like yes. a gun? Just, yeah. just to be clear, a, a, a number of times people are shot. Um, they don't. Even, you may not even know it just because it's adrenaline that's going on and it keeps yeah. you from actually feeling it. But he went bullet. down. And, and, in this instance, he went down. Now, yeah. I, I, I believe the report said that they he had the gun in his hand yeah. and yeah. they took the gun out of his hand. Now, one of the things that I noticed is that prior, uh, the, the initial report stated that he turned and, uh, and faced the police with the gun. That's what some witnesses tried to claim, and but then, then after they, they saw the, the video... video there, was, uh, there was no turn. So we had one instance where what the police claimed was no longer what was true, but then other officers corroborated that version of events and said, oh, he thought he was about to turn. Right, he, it was right, possible. Possible he was about to turn. Yeah. There's and smells also, funny the, to me. There's also the issue of the scuffle. Apparently, when... Ronald Johnson was running, he had encountered an officer and they scuffled and he pushed the, he managed to push the officer right. down and then continue to run. So did he do that with one gun in his hand? And then, well, I, mean, that's, he, I think that's something and, that we should look into. I think you'd have to question because this officer came on the scene and you could see him get out of the vehicle within about five seconds, maybe two seconds, he started opening fire. So, And this is seeing an assailant running from a scene. And he was the only one, right? That's, that started that's, shooting. Yeah, yeah. So, so the question is, is, I think the point that you're bringing up, is how on earth was he in a scuffle with a gun in his hand with an officer? Why didn't they fire on him at that point? And again, the driver that had previously said that he had heard a shot from, um, from the backseat from, from back of the yeah. car that probably belonged to him recanted that statement and said he figured the guy was dead, he didn't want to get in trouble, 
you know, he didn't want a gun pinned, pinned on, on him. him. So why this not? This is very go? bizarre. And so that's enough to me to say, let the jury be a finder of fact here. Yeah. yeah. So the Before FBI has not gotten involved in this one, whereas they did get involved with the Laquan McDonald. The only thing that they did, I understand, is they helped make the video clear. Which can we just talk about the quality or lack thereof of yeah. that video yeah. for a yeah. second? Of why all these in 2015? Does it look like it could have been 1987? Yeah, right. Of all these right. videos, I don't think we would be having discussions if we were looking at iPhone quality, you know, How clear. is that po- I mean, yeah. listen, if you need any help, we got a lot of amazing <laughs> geniuses around here. There are more cameras, high-quality cameras that can see every last blemish on me. Right. But we cannot see... With audio. T- With right. audio. In 2015, whether a man who was running away had a gun in his yeah. hand. Well, Grainy I mean, videos. I mean, the reality is that the police department didn't want these video cameras to be there in the first place. Yeah. Now, there have been there hasn't been any mandates as to what quality the videos has to be. And so yeah. this is it clearly show, okay, well, you know, we'll put the videos on. We'll yeah. throw you a nice little low quality video. Exactly. And, I mean, you know, I, we'll I would be happy if they had like iPhone 5 quality camera <laughs> on there, right? Yeah. Yeah, these yeah, these the quality of these videos are like horrendous. Yeah, it's almost embarrassing. Absolutely. Uh so And then there's no sound. Yeah. It's another issue. Like uh, I feel like we just need legitimate cameras. We need legitimate cameras that can pick up sound across all departments. Right. Yeah. Right. All right. So it looks like we seem to be in agreement that something is amiss here. That there should be either further investigation, if not charges. Mm-hmm. So, what charges do you think, if any, should have been brought here? Well, I mean. <laughs> Looking at the Laquan McDonald charge, you can charge with first-degree murder based upon that. Now, here, obviously, the facts will come out during trial, and, and that's what we're not uh, we're not going to see now. And so when we're talking about the, the defense attorney, he was adamant that that weapon was planted on his body and that he never had that weapon. Again, you heard the recanting statement by one of the witnesses who was in the car saying that he only made those statements because it was advantageous for him at that time. And, yeah, the police, I believe, they, they, they made another statement saying that, well, they had him under oath. Well, he made that statement under under oath, I believe, as well. Am yeah. I correct? Yeah, and I, I think that, at the very least, manslaughter charges yeah. are appropriate here. Uh, and I, charges aren't convictions. Charges allow you, <laughs> allow the jury to be a finder of fact and to pr- continue to pursue the investigation. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that the fact that just a week or two ago they charged another officer with first-degree murder had any bearing on the way they decided to not prosecute in this case. Like, they don't want to... Chicago doesn't want to seem like a city that's just against its own police and charging left and right. Do you think that they have any relationship to each other? I mean, it's it's hard not to draw comparisons because they're very similar. They occur days apart, and yet we're seeing such a different outcome. You know, is this the fact that there was a gun involved enough to make this uh, sort of, I don't know, understandable or just dismissible. Well, well I think it's business as usual. I, I think we we got a couple of weeks ago a video that was so, you know, that it, it was hard to dispute. But so, if there's any level of dispute, it looks like they're going to always side with the cops. In, the, so, yeah. in the last video, the Laquan McDonald video, yeah. you actually saw Laquan McDonald yeah. in the video getting shot. And he was so far away. Just so, and there was no, it didn't feel like a very heat of the moment type of yeah. shooting. Here you see the guy run and he's like runs off camera. So yeah. we don't even see the moment of impact. And perhaps it's less emotional yeah. to the wa- viewer who sees this video. And so you're like, well, I, 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 don't, I don't know. I, I'm trying to understand why the difference. I know that the gun changes things a lot, especially the call goes out as shots fired. So an officer rolling up to the scene, 
assumes reasonably that shots have already right. been fired. The weird thing is, is that you roll up to the scene where many cops are already there and they're not shooting. Why do you start shooting? Right. Yeah. Right. So something um, definitely not cool here. I also, you know, we talked about this earlier when I was reading about uh, Ronald Johnson's history with law enforcement before, and I saw that there was one, um, like a domestic violence threatening to shoot his girlfriend and for me I I'm like well well yeah I wouldn't be out there protesting this guy and and right. BJ's like well that's exactly what they want you to do yeah I mean but, because you got to understand how to how the propaganda works and how the media is a very big component of advocation or making sure that the popu- our, our general population simmers down when it's time to simmer down and so what they do is they bring up these things that are completely irrelevant in the eye of what took place because the officer didn't have time to pull up his Rolodex and figure out the history of this guy. Yeah. He had no idea what was going on, so it had no influence on his him choosing to shoot or not. Yeah. It's completely irrelevant, and it's just slander at this point to, to even bring up this stuff. It's, it's, it doesn't need to be stated. Yeah, I, I would say the prosecutor, you know, they determine charges based, based on likelihood of conviction. And so, and not necessarily based on whether or not the person should be charged, you know. Um, so, I, in, in that sense, maybe the prosecutor determined something that those that history yeah, or other that, things may have been. All of that's not yeah. coming into evidence. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. But you know, the prosecutor, I think, takes a global look at the case. I, I'm not saying they were right to do it. I think he should be charged. But I, I, I see where they might be coming from if that's the argument they're making here. But uh, at the end of the day, I think they really stuck a little too closely to the police department and their version of events. And the jury should have gotten the opportunity yeah. to be the finder of fact yeah. on this one. Well, I think we're all agreed. Nobody here objects. Yeah. All right, we are in agreement. Okay, so moving on to the city of New York, uh, we're going to, you know, a different page about police officers. Here we're going to talk about somebody who I'm going to call a hero. And this is uh, Officer Craig Matthews, who is a 17-year veteran of the NYPD, and he filed a lawsuit because he uh, thought that the quota practice, which was has been illegal all along, you know, led to unjustified stops, arrests, and summonses, and uh, created bad relationships between the police department and the community. And he tried to f- complain about this, and then he was disciplined. Uh, then his lawsuit was dropped. And then, thank goodness, an appeals court picked it back up. And he ultimately ended up winning $280,000. I don't believe that all $280,000 goes to him. I think it's $125,000 in damages that goes to him. uh, And then $30,000 in lost overtime wages. And then the city has to pay his uh, legal fees of $130,000. So am I right to call this guy a hero? Yeah, I mean, I think that what he's doing is is setting a stage for something that should have been done a long time ago um, because we have a culture in the police department of individuals who have a strong uh, brotherhood and who who really affirmatively believe in keeping up or or protecting themselves by any means, if that means uh, planning weapons, if that means falsifying statements to the media or in their investigatory reports, they'll do that. And so what you see here is, and this is just my personal opinion, of course we want to prosecute these police officers. Of course we want to see uh, uh, legislation change. But what you see here is very pivotal and it's way more important than I think people realize is because you're changing the culture of the police department to actually work for the people. Mm -hmm. And so what I say by that is 
is uh, meaning that when something takes place in a police department or at a crime scene, they're not going to just back each other up because now they're incentivized to actually protect themselves because somebody else might come out and say and, and, and blow the whistle and understand yeah. that they'll be protected if they do blow that whistle. So I think this is very big. Also, in breaking the code of silence, he not only faced, you know, social repercussions and right. that, you know, his police officers felt like he was a narc, but he was also detained against his will and hospitalized. Right. They basically tried to make this man look crazy. And right. to let you know just the kind of wrongdoing that's going on in these apartments that they're actually kind of crucifying their own, you know. So then when you see these cases that we have Laquan McDonald and all of a sudden things start to fit just their version of events, you start to wonder... You know, is there more going on? Right. So this all began back in 2008 because uh, Matthew says he and other officers in his precinct, this is in, in the Bronx, were pitted against each other to see who can make the most stops, arrests, stop and frisk. And this gave rise to, you know, this stop and frisk regime. Or it wasn't, that's not what gave rise to it, um, the uh, broken windows policy is what gave rise to it. But then this is how they started recording or measuring how well they were doing. Is there Do, do quotas of any kind uh, have a role here? I mean, should there be some way that we're measuring police productivity and efficiency? Um, I think you certainly need the numbers at the end to see what, peop- what the police are doing, how many felonious assaults, just their actual metrics. But I don't think you need to have a quota in any respect. I think police should know that they have the right to determine the situation, dangerous or not, and to be able to make their their judgment calls without having the specter of, I need to make this many arrests. I need to find, you know, this level of assault or, you know, whether it's a misdemeanor or a felony. I think that leads to... If you're just looking for, the only thing you're looking for is people who are doing something even slightly wrong or look slightly suspicious so that you can can stop. The only part about this settlement... I mean, I would add, it's one thing to, to to notice someone that is just acting out of the norm. Now, when you start typecasting people and you start stereotyping and you start picking out people that have no, there, there's no indicators of any wrongdoing taking place, now you have a waste of the city's money and a taxpayer's money at that time because you're, you're just simply, in fact, it, obviously it's discrimination at this point, but it's not conducive to good policing. And I think the worst is you, maybe you do find a criminal who's committing a misdemeanor, but you don't have enough felonies that week. So you need to try to find a reason to pin a felony on this guy. And now all of a sudden, any rehabilitative efforts that might have helped him from the misdemeanor are taken away. Yeah. He's going to be in jail longer, loss of job, you know, loss of life, wages, you know, all these different things. Not to mention it in- incentivizes wrongdoing on the behalf. And I'm not even just talking about targeting these people in yeah. a stop and frisk um, or, or a Terry stop. What I'm talking about is planning evidence and creating circumstances that yeah. will allow you to meet those numbers. Yeah. So the only I th- part of this uh, settlement that was somewhat a bummer to me was the fact that the city did not acknowledge any wrongdoing in settling this case. Uh, should I mean, I think, who came up with this quota system? Should they be penalized, punished? I mean, if they're still on the yeah, force. Yeah, fire. Uh, fire. I, I don't know if it goes far enough. I mean, this, this vindicates the officer who I am again going to call a hero uh, because he is, and also because I think it's important that people know that even though we cover a lot of cases of br- police brutality, um, police killing what appear to be innocent people on this show, that I at least have a lot of respect for good police officers, and I appreciate them. 
And when I see stories like this, especially, I mean, I cannot imagine the the position that this guy was in. Does he keep his job, his reputation, not make any waves, or does he stand up for what's not just legally correct, but morally correct, what's best for the community at large, for the country at large. I mean, I think he took a ginormous risk, and he should be rewarded heavily. Yeah, the likelihood of success was low. So, yeah, this was a huge risk on his part. I mean, what... Now, the city has to pay out this money, Mm. and when we say the city, it's really just taxpayers. (laughs) Uh, And they don't admit wrongdoing, but do you think it changes anything within the department? Not at all. I think at this point, all that's going to happen is the department is going to become more sophisticated with this quota system. Maybe it's not a quota system now. Maybe it's, hey, we just want to recognize Jim because he had 10 felonies this week. You know, it could be something like that. It could be sort of a a volunteer, just like maybe just a reward system. So instead of redlining uh, people who don't make the quota that week and shaming them like we're in third grade, instead they're going to just reward people who um, have a massive amount of arrest and who supposedly have more productivity than others. Is it going to get promoted? Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, there's a potential for that, but I think overall they're just going to become smarter about how to, you know, keep this sort of policies, okay. policing system and maybe even retaliate, you know, more severely against officers who speak out. I mean, to, hosp- to have someone hospitalized, to give them punitive assignments, to deny them overtime, which is also an employment law violation, yeah. is uh, pretty egregious. And I think that they go they'd go even further at this point. Yeah, my I hope, hope is that, yeah, my hope is one officer would make <laughs> a different decision. <laughs> my hope is one officer would make a different decision based on this. But given what this guy went through to get there, right. it's yeah. still a lot. So, That's the reality. Yeah. That's the reality. So, and I completely agree. I just think that. Um, like I said, I mean, obviously, it's still a groundbreaking circumstance, yeah. yes. and I think that uh, I, I mean, I'm in line with all of you guys. I think that there, it will change form. Um, you will still see some type of uh, incentivization for arrest, but uh, I think that we definitely should stand up as a country. Um, and this guy, his picture—you're talking about putting pictures over billboards of people making ignorant statements. This guy's picture needs to be across the nation. We need to honor this guy as, for what he did as, as yeah. a hero as and celebrate him. I mean, we have to go looking for these stories. And that's when things will change is when we start to do that kind of work. So uh, the media in general starts yeah. to do that kind of work. So, so everybody, praise Officer Matthews. All right, um, now Shaka, turning it over to you. It is our time. Football season marches on, and while your season-long fantasy team might be going nowhere fast, every week is a new shot for glory at DraftKings.com. DraftKings is the destination for one-week fantasy football, where you can relive the fantasy draft and play for huge prizes each and every week. Challenge your friends in a custom league, or join an existing one to play for your share of the billion dollars in prizes up for grabs this year. This isn't fantasy as usual, this is DraftKings. Welcome to the big time. Hurry to DraftKings.com now. Use promo code BLACK and play for free with your first deposit in Sunday's Million Dollar Fantasy Football Contest. First place takes home a hundred grand and a lifetime of bragging rights. Enter BLACK for free entry now, only at DraftKings.com. That's DraftKings.com. Yay, football. All right. Okay, uh, now to Yale we go. This is a follow-up to, like, a Halloween story uh, that was part of this... um, sort of onslaught of college um, protests about racist practices at colleges that either were not addressed or not sufficiently um, heard when students had complaints. And one of these came from Yale, where uh, a, what was it, the Intercultural Committee. Committee sent out a memo to students 
asking them to be conscientious about their choice in costumes, uh, trying to dissuade them from wearing costumes that were culturally insensitive, that could be offensive. Um, so that went out just as a suggestion, something something to think about. Didn't have any rules um, that it tried to cite. Didn't try to say if you don't follow along, you're going to be punished in any way. It was just a, I think, something that a, a cultural committee like this like should have to do. I mean, if they didn't do it, it would almost be like, well, yeah, what this is they why they exist, yeah. right? <laughs> to create cultural awareness and, you know, foster mutual understanding across different cultures. Well, one teacher, um, a professor at Yale, did not uh, agree with that. And she thought, uh, she sent out an email uh, to, to students uh, disagreeing with the recommendation by the Intercultural Association. She says, is there no room anymore for a child or a young person to be a little bit obnoxious? Do we even have to try to be obnoxious? Um uh, a little bit inappropriate or provocative or, yes, offensive, she wrote. American universities were once a safe space, not only for maturation, but also for a certain regressive or even transgressive experience. Increasingly, it seems, they have become places of censure and prohibition. So this started an uproar, and she decided she didn't want to teach anymore. <laughs> She's resigning. Um that she, I keep saying, is Erica Christakis. She taught courses on child development and psychology. And frankly, if somebody who's teaching child development and psychology is encouraging us to be <coughs> more transgressive and less mature, less conscientious, yeah. less thoughtful, less sensitive, I don't really know if she needs to be teaching at any place, especially Yale. Yeah, I thought her comments were more appropriate for like an eight or nine year old child, <laughs> not adults who are legally adults at a top university that are supposed to be conscientious of, you know, cultural surroundings. And I, I saw where she was coming from from an academic setting. If we're in the classroom, feel free to say what you you want so that we can create a discourse. But these kids live on campus. It's it's their safe space. It's their home. And so creating a divisive home, I think, would be the last thing anyone on that campus would want to do. I think overall it's important that she understand that the intercultural committee was not, you know, requiring that students not wear Native American headgear. I think they were attempting to foster an understanding of culture in the hopes that people would decide not to do it. But also, if they did decide to do that, they have to understand that there are repercussions because other people have First Amendment rights as well. It can also be inappropriate yeah. and um, regressive towards you as well. And I think that's something she misunderstood. Which is funny. The, the reason she cited that she's no longer teaching is because, I forgot to take, take down the quote, but essentially it was because she felt that the uh, environment of Yale was no longer conducive to civil discourse. Is that something? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, what she said. And we're not talking, we're talking about Halloween and people partying <laughs> and feeling safe at home. We're not talking about and it. Costumes. Yeah. Yeah, this wasn't a seminar or a lecture or, you know, a precept. This was, like, them living and enjoying their living space. So, And this initially start, began because there were African-American girls who were go, trying to go to a party 
on campus or at a fraternity house that is affiliated and associated with the campus, therefore subject to its policies, and they refused to let them in because they were black girls. So that is not, that's certainly not a civil climate. And, you know, the African American students' responses and intercultural committees also partnering with those students' respond is because there is no civil climate already on their campus. But so she, so she reacted to this memo that went out, and then a lot of people reacted to her. But as far as I saw, there was no, like, violence. There was no rioting. There was these students did not go off the deep end. They just passionately disagreed with her. Is that not what civil discourse is? So she's leaving because she, to me, didn't like the response that she got. Not because the environment was yeah. not conducive to anybody saying what they wanted to say. I, I just... Yeah, and I, curiously, Yale said you can come back anytime, but, you know, PR a lot of times when you're asked to leave, you're asked to leave voluntarily with, you know, a sort of a, a good look for both the university yeah. and for her. So, uh, at the very least, I think she's out of an, a situation where she's impacting these young kids. Yeah, I don't think that First Amendment free speech ha- has to clash against being sensitive mm-hmm. and being conscientious. I don't think people that come up with these silly costumes are doing it to make a statement like I'm dressing like a Native oh, American yeah. because I'm making some kind of statement they're just being thoughtless and yeah. all that this memo was is asking them to be a little more thoughtful and I think we've all had friends that have probably regretted doing something of that nature and <coughs> had they seen an email out. yeah had they seen an email that would thought twice about doing yeah, that I, yes. this yeah is, I, I think this is this is silly um, so sorry but good riddance to you and I hope you find a more <laughs> uh, I don't know um all right, so this week, um, gosh, so this, wow, last week at around about this time, there was breaking news uh, about a shooting in San Bernardino, and we heard about it just minutes before we went live, and there was not enough information out there for us to bring to be really of any service, just that we knew that there were, were shooting. We had no idea who was involved, how many people were involved, and now we've learned that 14 people were killed at a holiday party. Uh, and that the shooters were a husband and wife team, a um, an American citizen uh, for the husband, although he's Pakistani-born, and his wife was also Pakistani-born, raised in Saudi Arabia, and had come here recently on a fiancé visa. Uh, so this couple had like a six-month-old baby, and apparently had become radicalized. Uh, Her social media page indicated that she had pledged allegiance, I guess, to ISIS, and the husband's father said that his son supported ISIS. And so now we had, you know, 14 people that were killed at the husband's company's holiday party. The husband was a health inspector for San Bernardino. So not only 14 people killed, but 20 others um, shot. I mean, Horrible, terrible, frightening, senseless, and all the attention now is on the fact that these were um, Muslims, the two shooters, and Donald Trump took it upon himself to issue a statement, so not something that he said um, at any live event, not answering any questions. Uh, He just issued this statement that we should ban all Muslims. Done. Uh, And most people... Well, can I say most people? I'm going to say many people are upset about this. They see this as un-American, not just Democrats, but also Republicans. But apparently there's a lot of people that believe him 
or believe in what he's saying because he's still coming out ahead in the Republican polls. And it leads us to think, well, could this really happen? I mean, Donald Trump, the statement is ridiculous, first of all. Um, And obviously, being on the show... Uh, for as long as we have been, you guys know my sentiments, and it won't be hard to figure <laughs> out that I am not a proponent. In fact, that I don't like Donald Trump. Um, in fact, uh, I think Donald Trump is no more than a Ku Klux Klan in a suit, uh, to, to be honest with you. And so as far as I'm concerned, um, but, but let me just say, the one thing I do like about Donald Trump is that he doesn't hide his views and ideologies um, like many others in power do. Because you see, these other people hide their ideologies in legislation. Mm-hmm. They hide it in policy. Mm-hmm. They hide it in their corporations and, and their, uh, you know, and, so and their functional yeah, uh, right, businesses um, or, or entities. And so uh, that's one thing I do like about it. We can see him coming from a mile away and not elect him. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what's, what's crazy is that I think that you were kind of getting at that point is that so many people still follow him and still yeah. agree with his sentiments and ideologies. And so my thing, honestly, is from my perspective, I almost uh, his, his statements are such that I don't even want to, uh, you know, speak with people or talk to people, associate with people who would still vote for this kind of man. I think he's a mockery to what this state to what this uh, country is supposed to stand for. And yet in American history, we have incidents where we have excluded, banned groups of people. Uh, We've done this with the Chinese Exclusion Act. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've also done this with the Japanese internment. So let's do a little refresher for Mm -hmm. people who don't recall or even know about this. Shaka, do you want to start us off on the the China Exclusion Act? Well, we had the Chinese Exclusion Act, which excluded um, the Chinese workers from coming in that we'd actually recruited. This Um, was from the time when we were building the railroad. Yeah. And so we'd actually recruited them, and then we decided to exclude them. And then we went further, um, obviously, with the Japanese and putting them in internment camps. And as far as I know, um, while the Chinese Exclusion Act was repealed by Congress, I don't know if we ever found this to be illegal. It Actually, it went to the Supreme Court because yeah. the, the somebody, a, a Chinese man who had been in the United States working for 12 years, had gone back to China to visit his family, tried to get back in, and he wasn't allowed in. And he took it all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, no, that Congress has plenary power to yeah. legislate, and that was that. Yeah, so we eventually Such was the same with Korematsu. Yeah. Uh, the Supreme Court decided that Japanese internment camps are okay in the interest of national security. Sounds familiar? Yeah. Sounds a little bit like post-9-11. Right. So we definitely, this is still and, very present and possible yeah. today. And yeah, so legally, from a legal standpoint, what he's suggesting is absolutely legally plausible. And so I think Although that's... Although, in, the yeah. in the two, these two circumstances, we talked about countries, exactly. Chinese and Japanese. Um, uh, we're, now, we're talking about Muslims who make up, I understand, uh, 25% of the world's population. Mm-hmm. More important. But. And, that's, and they don't come from a single country. Right. But we've just spent the last, I would say, the last 10, 12 years talking about this war on terror that is a nebulous war. So, but see, that's where we have a problem in this country. Mm-hmm. Because the world, what does the war, the war on terror mean? In this country, yeah. uh, I'm sorry, in this country, it actually means the war on Islam. That's what it's become. That's what it's come to mean, actually, and it should mean that. And that's happened from 9/11 through every. That that's the power of the media that we talked and, about. And I think, but I think it's part. Of, I think it's become that to a certain degree because there has been no one country you can quantify it down to. And so we can talk about 
Pakistan and Afghanistan and these pockets of um, resistance that you know are against American interests. But because there has been no one country, you can say we are fighting you. We've had this well, neighborless well, war. Well, this has, is, but yeah. this is like this didn't come out of left field. There were a lot of people, including Bernie Sanders. I guess you can tell who I hope becomes the next president, who were saying <laughs> if we go into Iraq and invade, that it will destabilize all of the Middle East. Yeah. So we knew that this ha- was going to have a big effect on not just one country, but on many. And we had been in the Middle East for a long time. We had supplied guns, weapons to many of these groups, rebel groups, and then some Including of these... Including ISIS and yeah. Al-Qaeda. But, but I think the question is, are we going towards the harm as best we can? And I, and I, I can see why they would say, well, it's uh, Muslim extremists that are causing this harm, so if we ban all Muslims, that gets rid of the extremists. Okay, great. Except so we still have Dylan Roof and James Holmes, who are homegrown, uh, yeah. uh, white, uh, different kind of terrorists, right. who I am to ban just all as Muslims is definitely just knee-jerking here. It is. Um, we're I, responding I, to San Bernardino that happened last Wednesday. Let's face it, this couple immigrated here. So we think the best way to avoid all terrorism is not let any more Muslim immigrants into well, this I'm country. Except the problem uh, with that is that... The majority of the terrorists in the United States are homegrown. We're also very unique in that not even the European powers, Britain and France, have as many homegrown terrorists as we have. And that's really interesting that ISIS has been able to radicalize people over social media. Right. So closing our borders and and just pointing towards our borders and taking a massive religious group of over a billion people and, you know, denying them entry into the country because of 4% of that population is extremely not responsible. Well, to be devil's advocate, when Trump came out with this statement, he cited this um, report that said, 25% 25% of Muslim Americans are fine with the violence of extremists against Americans. That they are content with that violence. There's and that, that's what he cited. I, don't, you know, I, I can't talk to the specifics of the statistics and whether or not they're accurate So if there was not, a way but. that we could round them up, <coughs> fine. But there, we, we, we can't do that. And it's even un-American to do that because a belief in something yeah. you can't prosecute somebody for. I would say content doesn't even rise to the level of belief. Yeah, Just yeah. being like, I don't want to bother with this and put your blinders on is not necessarily... I know you are on the level of an extremist. BJ's chomping yeah. at the bit. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I just think that when we're talking about uh, we're talking about these types of incidents and, and we're talking about terrorism in America, we and that's why I completely agree with you that uh, the vast majority of these individuals are homegrown. Uh, but let's go a little bit further with that because the reality is the vast majority of the terrorists that takes place on this land are not just homegrown. They're conducted by white American men. And so, and so if we want to start throwing um, shade, or I shouldn't even throw shade, we want to actually keep people out of this country, well, we need to look a little bit closer at who's actually conducting the vast majority of these right. terrorist attacks. We have attacks. a lot of racial hate crime. We have, but, like, we had the abortion. But I right. Should, there's a different kind of homegrown extremist I just think that, with that those, we should look at. With those issues, um, Immigration wouldn't necessarily solve that. Like closing the borders don't solve those issues. Other things solve those issues, and those I think they're separate issues that we have to look at and address aggressively. Well, how does immigration solve an issue of a homegrown terrorist who? Then well, I'll just say who is a Muslim. Well, we, this guy went over. So because remember, Donald Trump has also said he wants even Muslim Americans, if they're abroad currently, when he puts in the band, that they will not be allowed back for whatever period of time it is for them for us to then determine what's the best way to go about letting people back in. So, and that's, that's absurd. I, I'm Muslim, and I'll and, tell, I'll tell yeah. you this. I take 
a high offense to that statement because you're telling me now, and I've lived here, I was born here, my ancestry actually dates back way, be- way, be- way before any type of European conquest to this land. Yeah. So to tell me that when I leave this land simply because I'm Muslim, it's preposterous. It's crazy because we need to really take a second and think about who are the true foreigners in this land when we start to talk about these immigration laws and stuff. I, I yes. agree, but I just don't know if that goes necessarily to the harm that he is trying to prevent and that most of America is sort of fearful of. And so when I play devil's advocate, I I, I want to look at what's driving this because he's got a large, large amount of support. What's driving it so there, is fear, and he's really, yeah. really great at tapping yeah. into the fear. And we all have fear, and mm-hmm. but that is the name of this game it of is. life, is. is to not give into the fear, to overcome it, to look at the reality, to address problems in an intelligent way, if we all just ran around, I mean, just that's that's the he is you know being called a demagogue. He is a, a god of fear. If but he had to be I, called a leader of something, he is the leader of the fearful. And sure, we are all um, saddened and and angry and afraid to be you know shot up at a movie theater or a holiday day party. But we can't <coughs> give in to fear to begin to treat other people badly. It's not American. Also, his policy on banning Muslims is basically just touting a false sense of safety. So let's say we got rid of every single Muslim and we denied anyone who went on holiday re-entry into the country. Everyone's going to say, Whew, I'm safe now. I can go to an abortion clinic and get birth control now. <laughs> I can go to, I can go to my Christian church and have service and praise and worship. And that should be perfectly fine. But I, No, it's important that the public understands right. that this is not the greatest threat. The numbers, the math, it does not add up. I, I will say this. I do not agree with Donald Trump's ban on all Muslims. But um, do I think we probably do need to look at a, a stronger look at our immigration policy if there are loopholes that are too loose? Uh, are there better ways to scrutinize a fiancé waiver, uh, waiver to come in? I, I think we do need to look at our immigration policies. And that gets us there to look at it. I think it's great, but I do not agree with the ban on all Muslims. Yeah. But I do see where he's coming from and why it's a talking point. But see, the concern, as she just stated, the concern is completely displaced. I completely, yeah. I, I, I see what you're saying yeah. about, hey, well, well, maybe we should look at this. Yeah. But the numbers, like she just stated, the numbers don't show you that that's what we should actually be focusing on. Yeah. But they do show you that's a problem that we can we can look at through our immigration well, policy. Well, I can tell you, there's a million so. problems we could look at. We can look we at the banning assault which rifles. Which we should focus on first. Well, yeah, but I, I think there are all game, and I think you have to look at everything. I think during the presidential election, see, I think you have that's to the problem. Is that's what I hear from. And I, this is not a political show, but here I go. That we hear <laughs> a lot from the Republicans. Well, we got to look at this. We got to look at the mentally ill. We got to look at the. Let's stop. Let's actually look, and then like let's do something. But that's Agreed, the yeah. thing. Is like let's take the time to look at this and consider that. And I think I did hear that they did tighten up some of the um, waivers or uh, immigration waivers um, right after that shooting. Yeah, so. and President Obama said on Sunday he you know wants to take um, gun rights away from people who are on like no-fly lists and hopefully things that are simple enough for us to agree on. Well, if you look at the criteria on how you can get on a no-fly list, it's very low. It's well, so well, I know we've had, we've anybody had government officials mistaken. Yeah. It could be from no mouthing off to the gate agent. It's ridiculous. You can get on a no-fly list. It's well, ridiculous. that's interesting. All right, so um, obviously this lends itself to... to gate agent. All right. right. <laughs> we, uh, <laughs> that's good. Okay, so we have to move on to uh, somebody that maybe you are familiar with. I personally am not familiar with his <laughs> body of work, but we are going to talk about porn star James Dean. <laughs> Uh, that is not his real name, um, yeah. but he apparently, from what I understand, is a 
pretty well-known performer, is that what they're mm-hmm. called? Uh, he's been it's at this game for like 10 years or so, and uh, there have been a slew of women, I think about nine women, who have come forward to say that he sexually assaulted them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a little reminiscent of like Bill Cosby, where... I don't know if he's called, like, the golden boy of porn, but, like, he's, I guess, well-known, under-received. I, I, God, I, I have to be very careful with my <laughs> words here. on female following. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so somebody with a, a lot of female <laughs> respect. Uh, he, they, he, he was called a feminist. He was considered a feminist. Among well, right. yeah, although he true. said, I'm not a feminist, and I yes. make yeah. rape jokes, and I'm, that doesn't mean I'm a rapist. But, so he... Um, you know, was well-respected, and then now these women are coming forward. Nobody has actually gone to the police, filed, or there's no charges been filed. And the reason they give, obviously, is very interesting that, you know, nobody takes them seriously anyway. Um, and people, law enforcement even thinks, well, if you put yourself in the position to be a porn star, you sort of are asking for it. But, so nine women have come forward to say that he, they forced him they forced them to do things that they didn't want to do. Uh, why, why should we care? Well, I think this is a very big women's rights issue. I, I think that today that women are still feeling they cannot report sexual assault <coughs> is an issue. And whether you're a porn star or not a porn star, because you still have women on college campuses wondering, did I wear something too provocative? I can't go to the police. And so I think this is actually sheds a light on a bigger issue about women's rights and the fact that we do need to protect um, everyone, males, females, yeah. victims. There's yeah. also the issue of these male celebrities who are at the top of their field, and this is why he's being compared to Bill Cosby, who almost seem to sometimes have the persona that they are untouchable. And sometimes that can actually give rise to this sort of activity and knowing that, hey, I'm James Dean at the top of the porn industry. <laughs> if I rape this wannabe porn star... Who will say anything? And she's got to work with me in the future if she wants to continue to rise in her own career. Or if she wants to work in the industry at all in the future, she has to keep her mouth shut. And because she was his actual, um, it it was reported that she was his ex-girlfriend, well, one of the people, I think you were saying that, right? Um, and, and so that also brings back that same conversation that I'm sure we've all heard of or talked about in law school as to whether a man can rape his girlfriend, right? Yes. And so and that brings back that in. And of the course, I think yes. we all would yeah. say yes. Yeah. Just yeah. in yeah. case course. you didn't know. Of course, yeah. right? And so, but I think that that's on the table as well is that question yeah. because yeah. I think this is a complicated circumstance simply because of, um, and from what I've read, I don't watch the guy. Just put that on the record. But from what I actually read, this I didn't know about him until this. But um, from what I read, like he engages in violent forms of sexual intercourse. Am yeah. I correct? Yeah. And so when you have sexual intercourse with that type of a person, um, or, or you you're in a relationship with that kind of a person, it's it, it becomes convoluted. And I think yeah. you, you stated early, Shaka, that there um, there's a what do they call a safe word? Yeah, and that she that he violated her safe word. She gave the safe word. Yeah. But I think even with the safe word, just because of these types of sexual activities that are going on, it still it really complicates the circumstance. And I and I hate to see it because, uh, like you say, it, you know, should we care? If, I mean, we're talking about rape here. Yeah, of course yeah. we should care. Yeah. It should be cut and dry. It just isn't. It's yeah. unfortunate. It's I mean, not. it would be great if these women were able to come forward and successfully yeah. charge, bring charges or lawsuits because then, yeah, college women would be like, well, if the porn stars yeah. can be vindicated, then I can too. Yeah, right. All right, that will have to be the end of our show. Thank you so much, BJ, Shannon, and Shaka for joining me. If you'd like to leave comments, please do, or you can tweet me, at Chelsea Galicia, or BJ. Just BJ Abram. Shannon Myricks. At Shaka Strong. 
And join us again next week for another episode of Justice is Served. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you. From producers Maria Menounos, Dario Kristen, Tiana Hobson, Kevin Undergaro, and the entire BHL crew, we would like to thank you for supporting Black Hollywood Live, the first online broadcast network dedicated to African-American entertainment. For questions and comments, contact us at info at blackhollywoodlive.com. Like us on Facebook, tweet us, or Instagram us at BHL Online. And I'm your BHL announcer, Scipio. Instagram me at Planet Scipio. Thank you for tuning in. Hollywood, Hollywood Redefined. Redefined. The views expressed here are those of the host owner and do not necessarily reflect the views of BHL or its owners or principals.